Hey, good morning. I want to preach so long, by the time I'm done, it's going to be good afternoon. Just kind of a timing joke. Bad one, apparently. Hey, God is awesome, right? And I hope that your worship aligns with how awesome He is. I, I don't know if you think about that, right? But, like, I wondered if your worship just now was as good as it's ever been. Was your worship just now as, as good as it's ever been? And if not, maybe you should ask why. It's like, man, what's that about? If we're growing in the Lord and we're understanding Him more each and every day, shouldn't our worship be just more incredible than it was the last time? I hope it is for you guys. It's good to be with you. Love doing this. We are winding down this book called Ephesians. We have today, verses 14 through 17, and then next week, Pastor Day is going to wrap up Ephesians uh, chapter 6 in the book of Ephesians. And then we'll have a Thanksgiving message after that, which I'm going to do. And then we're going to start the book of Nehemiah the week after that. The first weekend in December, we will start the book of Nehemiah, which means your homework between now and the first weekend of uh, December is to try to read Nehemiah, all 13 chapters in one sitting. That's just an encouragement. If you can do that, please do it. I think it'll be helpful. If you can do it more than once, do it more than once. But try to read through the book of Nehemiah, all 13 chapters in one sitting sometime uh, between now and the first weekend of December. Amen? So if you know anything about me, I'm not a real p- political guy when it comes to mixing politics and, and church and theology, and I just don't want to get into that. But what I do want to share with you is a, 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 a letter I got, an, e, an e-newsletter from our friends. My wife and I, uh, Dan and Lori Frost, have been doing ministry on Capitol Hill for uh, close to 20 years. And I just, I just thought this would be encouraging to hear. Um, And then I want to read something out of Revelation chapter 1 after this, and then we're going to jump into Ephesians 6, okay? Dear friends, Washington, D.C. is a city that operates in a completely different manner than any other city that I know. I often say that D.C. is a large city, but Capitol Hill is a small town. It is in that small town where it seems everybody knows someone connected to someone you know. This can be both good and bad. Good because it allows you to build relationships with many more people who are serving or connected to the government. But bad because you can easily be negatively labeled and quickly marginalized if you lose the trust of the people you are working with. Lori and I have been fortunate enough to have maintained that trust with the people who have invited us into their private worlds. We have done this by working with both sides of the aisle and not politicizing our ministry, but bringing a kingdom perspective to whatever the need might be. Though the news from our nation's capital continues to be filled with negativity, we want you to know that there are many good stories that never make the news. Several years ago, Lori felt the Lord put on her heart that God was going to pour out His Spirit on D.C. And it would be a city that would worship Him and call Him Lord. This past week on the mall, there were 50 tents of worship set up representing every state with around-the-clock 24-hour worship in each tent over the weekend. The Museum of the Bible will be opened this month in November, and Lori and I will be attending a pre-opening gala this week to celebrate this amazing new addition to the mall. The building itself is 430,000 square feet. Congress continues to have every session open in prayer. Bible studies are taking place all over Capitol Hill, and many believing staff are seeing their offices change. Because of the spiritual hunger for truth. Keep praying, church. Keep praying, he writes, that there will be more and more release of the Spirit to empower and radically change this small town. We're so privileged to have a part of this and are believing that God is at work both in the seen and the unseen. Amen? It's a good word for us, right? 
I just thought that was worthy of sharing. I hope that's okay. Let me read from you. I was in Revelation earlier this week in, in just my quiet time. I just want to, you don't have to turn there. If you want to, that's fine. But you don't have to. Let me just read in light of that letter. I just thought this was appropriate. I want to read from you out of Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Christ Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. And He has made us to be a kingdom Priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Verse 7 and 8, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. That's the God we serve. That's the God who's really in control of our nation's capital. Our God is a sovereign God. Amen? All right. I thought that was a good word for us. We're going to read Ephesians 6, verses 14 through 17, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Okay? So let's read Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. Ephesians 6, starting at verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition, Paul writes, in addition to all that, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray. Almighty God, the battle is real. We see it all around us. We'd have to be blind to think that there's not a battle that exists between good and evil. And Lord, we thank you that you have equipped us to engage in that battle so that we can have victory, which is found in Christ. Lord, we pray that we engage each day as people that are armored in the things of Christ. And so we pray that you would have your way with us, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning the things that we need to hear through your Holy Spirit. We lift up all of this in the mighty name of Christ and everybody said, Amen. So I want to open with some stuff about just in general, biblical armor, okay? And all of this comes from the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. I recommend one on every bookshelf, okay? So this is not my words, this is from the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Because I know you get me confused with brilliant words and I don't want you to do that, okay? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, stop laughing, Jeff. It says this, Scripture frequently employs the imagery of armor as a metaphor for spiritual defense and protection. Old Testament symbolism emphasizes that God himself is the protector of his people. In Genesis 15, God prefaces his reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant with this assurance. He says, I am your shield and your very great reward. Thereafter, the shield becomes perhaps the most a common symbol of God's steadfast love and protection throughout the Old Testament. 
It is a favorite device of David who invokes this symbolism 15 times as, is, as he does in 2 Samuel chapter 22 where he says, He, the Lord, is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. Okay. In Psalm 91.4, David reveals that security is grounded specifically in the absolute faithfulness of God. Our security is grounded in the absolute faithfulness of God. In light of God's unfailing fidelity, faithfulness, believers are exhorted to trust in the Lord and take refuge behind Him as their protective shield. Psalm 115, 9-11 says this. This is a good one for me. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Because He is our help and our shield. I don't know about you and the things that you struggle with in your walk with God, but this word, this, these verses mentioned three times, my speed bump, and that's that word trust. To know that He's completely faithful and that He is our shield, and yet to trust that that's true all day, every day. It's where I get tripped up sometimes, and God has really, really uh, ramped up my level of trust, and I still have so far to go. In the New Testament, the imagery of armor is invoked less frequently. Whereas Old Testament symbolism emphasizes the personification of God as shield, the New Testament reveals various aspects of God's redemptive provision as the means by which the believer may lay hold of God's protection. And such symbolism is employed by Paul, as he says in Romans 13, verse 12. This is one example that he says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. So therefore, church, let us lay aside those deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light to walk in the truth, to walk in the faithfulness of our God and His protection. The most comprehensive and familiar, of course, is Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian church, to the church at Ephesus, to put on the full armor of God. But it is in other places in the New Testament. And it's just really a reminder of Old Testament thought. Paul's uh, use of the Greek word panoplia in Ephesians refers, listen, it's, all it's referring to, this armor, is the basic outfit of a Roman soldier of the day. God's not asking us to do anything that's just not basic clothing, basic equipment. That's all Paul is saying. And so believers are warned to take up each element of the armor provided. And every time Paul refers to this armor, it comes with a command to put on. To put on. <laughs> I don't think, I hope, nobody left the house this week unclothed. Giggle, giggle, right? I don't think. We would never think of leaving the house without our clothes on. How often do we leave the house and how often do we engage each day without being clothed in the armor of God, without putting on the armor of God? My, my guess is probably too often. Last week I mentioned in these verses that if, if, if we lose sight of it, we'll, we'll think it's about the armor, which it kind of is, and we'll think it's about the enemy, which it kind of is. But what it's really about is what? Do you remember? It's really about keeping our eyes focused on, on the Lord. Keeping our eyes focused on the Lord. We can get enamored with a lot of interesting things about church and theology, and oh, the armor of God, and oh, the enemy. Just keep our eyes fixed on the Lord. And I shared a scripture from Second Chronicles out of chapter 20, verse 12. 
If you remember this from last week, I thought it would be good to revisit it. That it says, oh, our God, we, will you not judge them? For, right, we've been here. We are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. That's a preoccupation with the enemy. And we don't know what to do. That could be a preoccupation with our armor. But look how it ends. But our eyes are fixed on you. And I think this is such a compelling verse for us because whether we've known the Lord for an hour now or for 50 years, we can fix our eyes on the Lord. All of us have the capacity to fix our eyes on the Lord to say, I'm not sure about the enemy. I'm not sure about the armor. But I know I can fix my eyes on the Almighty God. All of us can do that. Amen? I want to read these verses in the bigger context. I actually want to include um, chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. So I want to read those eight verses together the second time around, okay? So we're going to read Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. And as I do, just take an assessment as to how these verses might be gripping you, and then I'll explain in a second. Just see what's going on for you inside. Let's start at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of His might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness. Therefore, take up the full armor so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, church having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So I ask, do do these verses grip you in one of two ways? Does Paul... In those verses 10 through 17, does, it, does he seem to come across with this chaotic concern or a calming confidence? A calming confidence. We, church, of all people, should engage life with a calming confidence. And that's how Paul wants us to engage each day, every day, with a calming confidence. Paul's words of encouragement, they're placed towards the end of the letter. If it was a sense of urgency, he might have placed it at the beginning of the letter and then repeated it in the middle and then also put it at the end. But he puts it at the end in, I think, a very uh, confident way, a calming, uh, confident way. And so they serve more as a reminder than any sort of a desperate request, I think. The Word of God, church, gives us a calming confidence for our daily lives for the daily enemy, and for the daily battles that we face. The Word gives us a calming confidence for everything that we face all day, every day. Peter even kind of talks about this. Go to Second Peter. Go to Second Peter. We're going to be in the first chapter of Second Peter. It's a little bit to your right. Tucked in after Hebrews and James, you'll find First and Second Peter. Go to Second Peter chap- chapter 1. So, Okay, so what kind of animal does the Lord compare us to? Sheep. Smart or unsmart? Unsmart. Right? I don't want to call anybody dumb, so I'm not going to do that. Right? But He compares us to sheep. We, church, we need to be reminded all the time of the things of the Lord. And too often, we, whether we're reading something or we're at church or we're in a Bible study with friends or whatever, it's like, oh, I've heard this before. Oh, I've heard this before. Yes, and you need to hear it again, and you need to hear it again, and you need to hear it again. 
because all we like sheep have gone astray. And we need to be led at all times. And we need to be reminded at all times. Let's start at verse 12. Therefore, Peter writes, <laughs> I will always be ready to remind you. I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Look at even though you already know them. Hmm. And you've been established. You're established in the truth which is present with you. But I'm going to remind you anyway, Peter writes. Isn't that amazing? What love from our Lord. Verse 13. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, his, right, his earthly body, to stir you, to provoke you by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is coming, as Christ has made it clear to me. I'm going to die pretty soon, and I will be diligent. I will also be diligent that at any time after I'm gone, you will be able to call these things to mind, because there's a real enemy and there's a real battle, and we need to be reminded all the time. Amen? So, here's what's cool. You can do this on your own. In these eight verses, starting at verse 10, down to verse 17 or over, or however you want to do it, right? In these eight verses, there's a really cool cadence, if you will, that the words are just there. Let me give you, this is how those, these are some of the words that I'm going to point out to you that go in order. It says, be strong, in verse 10. And then you can do this on your own. Be strong, and then it says, you will be able. Then it says, stand firm, and then it says, you will be able. And then it says, stand firm again, and then it says, you will be able. Paul's encouraging us for the battle. He's saying, be strong, you will be able. Stand firm, you will be able. Stand firm, you will be able. I just think it's such an encouraging word. So this, this is a calming confidence that Paul wants us to know that we can engage each life being strong, standing firm, because we are able. And so these verses, 10 through 17, it's a reminder, it's a reminder of our provision. It's a reminder of our opposition. It's a reminder for us to keep our lives and our eyes focused on the Lord at all times. At all times. And so if there is any sense of urgency, this is what that sense of urgency would be. The sense of urgency from Paul for you and for me would be to stand firm, to be strong. That's the sense of urgency, to stand firm all day, every day, by keeping our eyes on Christ and being filled by the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you, do we, do you and I, do we have a sense of urgency concerning the things of our God? I'm telling you, everybody here, I believe, has a sense of urgency about something. Your sense of urgency may be to do nothing. I have a real sense of urgency to check out, man. We all have a sense of urgency for something. For something. I'm just wondering if we have a sense of urgency for the things of our Lord. God provides the whole armor because Satan looks for that area where he can get a stronghold, where he can get a beachhead. He's smart. And so God wants us to be completely armored up so the enemy won't have a place where he can attack us. Earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 4, verse 27, it says, Paul writes, Do not give the devil what? Do you remember? An opportunity. Just two chapters before, Paul writes, do not give the devil an opportunity. If you give the devil an opportunity, what do you think he's going to do with that opportunity? Pass or take? Take. How many times? Every time. 
Do not give the devil an opportunity. He'll take it every time. And so I ask you today, where would the devil find opportunity in your life today? Where would the enemy find opportunity today in your life? Where are you weak and you know it? Where are you vulnerable? And, 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 and the Lord's trying to shore that up and just say, we've been talking about this for quite some time, Mark. Where would the devil find opportunity with you today? Here's our outline for our verses. Having and taking. Having and taking. Let me explain. I was in Second, uh, second Peter. I'm going to go back to Ephesians 6, right? Let's go back to Ephesians 6. Let's look at our first two verses, 14 and 15. Check this out. It says, Stand firm, therefore, having, having girded your loins with truth, having, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, verse 15, having, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. And then look what happens. We shift from having to taking in verse 16 and 17. In addition to all, taking, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the arrows of the evil one. Verse 17, and taking the helmet of salvation and taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Interesting. There's a having and a taking. It's both about what has been done and what we need to be doing. It's both. It's about understanding not just our justification, but also our sanctification. Not just what Christ has done for us, what the Lord has done for us, but now what we need to do for Him in taking up the armor. And that's what the whole book of Ephesians is all about. The first three chapters is what God's done for us. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is our response to, to, and how we respond to God because of what He's done for us. What do we do for Him? How do our lives align with what He's done for us? And so it's understanding what has been done, and what we need to do. And so standing firm in the Christian life is knowing and being reminded that we are simultaneously people of having and people of taking. We're both. And too often we live from people that have only done the having. This is what has happened to me. I have been declared righteous. Are you walking righteously? Well, no, I've been declared righteous. But we're not walking righteously. We're celebrating what has been done, and then we get wiped out in the current battle, and we wonder what happened. Let's reread verses 14 and 15 on our first stanza of having. Let's reread 14 and 15. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. There are, um, in these two verses, there's three pieces of armor that we just read. The truth, righteousness, and peace. Truth, righteousness, and peace. Let's talk about truth. That's that first one mentioned there, right? Stand firm, having girded your loins with truth. Satan is a what? He's a liar. Satan's a liar. Satan's a liar. Many of us have fallen for his lies, haven't we? But Satan's a liar. But the believer whose life is controlled by the truth can defeat a lying enemy because we know what is a lie and what's not a lie. We know what's true and we know what's a lie. In your walk with God, I ask you, in your daily walk with the Lord, what system or what systems do you have in place to assess how truth 
is in your life? How do you assess if truth is getting into your life? What system or systems do you have in place to know how much truth is in your life? Am I being a person of truth? And conversely, how do you assess if any lies may have snuck into your life? How do you do about doing that? How do you even know if a lie has taken root in your life? Clearly it's the Word of God, but it's also clearly exposing our lives to our our dear brothers and sisters in Christ that can discern, that can point things out, that can say, hey Mark, that looks kind of nasty. I think that may not be from the Lord. You may want to look into that. Are we willing to do that? Let's talk about this righteousness, this breastplate of righteousness. It refers not only to justification, right, that we're declared righteous. The minute we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are declared righteous in that moment. But this breastplate doesn't refer just to our justification, but also to the sanctifying righteousness that we practice in Christ every day. As a soldier's breastplate protected his chest, righteous living guards a believer's heart against the assaults of the enemy. Because the assaults are coming. And so righteous living guards our hearts against those attacks. So... We've been declared righteous, right? That is, that is what has happened to us. But we're to walk righteously. And so I ask you, how do you go about your Christian walk? Do you have a, a positional uh, walk with the Lord? Or do you have a practical walk with the Lord? A positional walk with the Lord says, well, I've been declared righteous. God loves me. And, and, and so I, I'm righteous because of what Christ did on the cross. You're right. That's absolutely correct. That's a positional doctrine. But then you're getting beat up by the enemy every day because you're not practicing your righteousness. You're not living righteously. And so we we, we declare all these things that have happened to us and we're not doing the things that we need to be doing every day to practice the righteousness of God every day. And I think far too many Christians are practicing a positional Christianity. And they're declaring what has happened, but they're not living in what they need to be doing. They're not practicing the righteousness of God today. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. Check this out. These three verses out of Romans 6. He says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. That's something you have to do. Therefore, don't don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey that sin and do not go on Like, stop doing this. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And do you guys remember what that word instruments means? Anybody? Weapons. That's what it means in the Greek. Don't go on presenting your body as weapons of unrighteousness. But rather, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as weapons or instruments of righteousness. So we don't just have this positional doctrine, this positional stance with our Lord of righteousness, but we also have this practical uh, stance that we wake up every day and we present ourselves as instruments of righteousness or weapons because there's a war out there. So are we weapons of righteousness or are we weapons of unrighteousness? It's our choice. All day, every day. And so this sanctifying righteousness that we are to practice all the time, 
demands that we live a lifestyle of presenting ourselves and presenting ourselves and presenting ourselves and presenting ourselves time and time and time and time again so that we can live and be weapons of righteousness. Check out what James says in chapter 4. I think this is a really compelling verse for us. You know, we just got off that whole section of being submissive, right? We are to be submissive to the Lord. Submit therefore to God, James writes. Submit to Him. Resist the enemy and he will flee from you. Do you know what we often do? Is we invert these a little bit. We submit to the enemy and then we resist God. We submit to the enemy and we resist God. We don't armor up. We don't live righteously. We falter. We stumble. And so on some level we're submitting to the enemy and then out of our shame and out of our guilt, right? Who fled in their shame and guilt back in Genesis? Adam and Eve. They covered and they hid and they ran. And so when we, when we submit to the enemy, we resist God and we run from God and we run from one another. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I want to I challenge you, church, that when you stumble and when you fall, man, please run to the Lord. Run to us, your brothers and sisters in Christ. We, like Christ, will receive you and love you. So submit to the Lord and resist the enemy. Don't submit to the enemy and resist the Lord. We, we get embarrassed and, and, and we're ashamed of our stuff. And then so what, what do we do? We resist God. And I beg you and I implore you, don't do that. Press into the Lord. Let us, on behalf of Christ, love you exactly where you're at. Submit to Him and submit to Him. And submit to Him. And resist the enemy. And I promise, He will flee from you. I promise. Our third weapon, our piece of armor, is this thing called peace in these two verses, 14 and 15. And this refers to a believer's stability, their steadfastness, their sure-footedness from the Gospel, which allows us to have peace in the midst of battle. Let me ask you, raise your hand if you've gone through anything in your life and in the midst of that battle you experienced the peace of God. Raise your hand if that's happened to you. There's proof right there that that Scripture is true. That we can go through stuff and experience the peace of God. But this verse also means that we must be prepared each day to share the gospel of peace with the lost world. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah declares that we have beautiful feet when we share the gospel. It says, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. Did you know that? Have you heard that verse? How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. That we have beautiful feet when we share the gospel. So I want to take a couple minutes and ask you all to remove your shoes and socks. Your feet should be beautiful. My feet should be beautiful. Because we're declaring the peace of God to a, a world that needs to hear about the hope that we have found in Christ to be reconciled to God because of what Christ has done. Because here's the deal. Here's the deal. Listen. Satan's declared war. Did you know that? Did you know that Satan has declared war? It happened a long time ago. But we, in the midst of that war, we are ambassadors of peace. Did you know that? Christ came and He ascended a while ago, a couple thousand years ago. And He's commissioned us to be ambassadors of peace. I don't know if you knew that. 
Check out 2 Corinthians. Turn to 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry. A few pages to your left you'll find 1 and 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read 18 through 20. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself because of what Christ did, right? Through Christ. And He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave it to us. The Lord gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So it's like me walking up to Mike. I'm God. And I said, hey Mike, um, I'm giving you the ministry of reconciliation. And I walk away. Mike can throw it down. He can reject it. You can do a lot of things with it. I just wonder what we would do if God gave us something and said, I'm giving you the ministry of reconciliation. That's what He's done. That's what what it says, does it not? That's what He's given us. So here's the deal. Congratulations. Each and every one of you are in full-time ministry. I'm not paying you, just so you know. But we're all, we're all in full-time ministry. Some of us are in vocational ministry and some of us are not in vocational ministry. It's my job, but all of us have the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, namely that God was in Christ and He reconciled the world to Himself. He didn't count their trespasses against them. So if He doesn't, why would I hold your trespasses against you? I must not. And He was committed, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us to the world. And so we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What a, what a great challenge for us, right? And so, are you ready? Am I ready to be sworn in today? Are we ready to be sworn in to raise our right hand and say, I am an ambassador? Of Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that? God's given it to you. We are to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ and the people that we encounter to be be able to share and understand that we need to share the love of Christ. Let's do our second stanza, this taking. Let's let's reread Ephesians 6, verses 16 and 17 for our second stanza. So in addition to the things mentioned in 14 and 15, take up taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the arrows of the evil and all the flaming arrows and taking the helmet of salvation and taking the sword of the Spirit which is God's Word. So just like the last two verses where we saw three pieces of armor, in these two verses we have three pieces of armor. We have faith, salvation, and the Word. So faith, let's talk about that, the shield of faith. A Roman soldier's shield, a Roman soldier's shield was made of wood. It was about two and a half feet wide and about four feet tall or long, if you will. And it was overlaid with linen and leather and soaked oftentimes in water in order to absorb the fiery arrows of the enemy. Just like we must also be immersed and soaked in the things of the Lord to extinguish the arrows of the evil one. And so the idea then is that a Christian's unwavering faith in the Lord can stop and extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. When we have an unwavering faith, we can extinguish 
all the arrows of the evil one. But what's also interesting about the shield is did you know that the edges of these shields were constructed so that an entire line of soldiers could interlock their shields and march like a solid wall? Why? The meaning is that we're not in battle alone, church. Yes, we have our shield and we need our shield. But we also need to lock our shields with one another. Because sometimes the enemy is just bigger than what we can withstand by ourselves. And so we lock arms with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we're left alone, church, bad things just happen. It's just, it just does. We ignore God. We resist God. We give in to the lies of the enemy because we're not armored up properly. And even though we may have our shield and we're holding on tightly, some battles are just too big for us alone. And that's why it's called the body of Christ, because we need one another. And so this shield of faith, it's not a saving faith, that was our justification, but rather it's a living faith, our sanctification. It's, it's a trust, to trust in the promises and in the power of God. Do you trust in the promises and the power of God? Because when you do, it's a shield of faith that the enemy can't penetrate. So here's what's interesting. <laughs> Listen. If the enemy knows that we don't have an unyielding faith in God, we shouldn't be surprised at all the arrows that are being shot at us. If we don't have an unyielding faith in God, in His power, then we should not be surprised at all the arrows that might be coming our way. Because here's the deal. The enemy is smart. He's crafty. It talks early in, in the earlier verses of chapter 6 about the schemes of the devil. That, that's methodic. He's methodical. He's strategic, right? So the best time to fire a flaming arrow is when? When our faith or when our shield is down. He'll know. He'll know exactly where to hit you. That's why our eyes must always be focused on the Lord all day, every day. Because the best time is when our faith or our shield is down. Let's talk about this helmet of salvation. In the same way that Satan defeated Eve, back in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, Satan wants to attack your mind in the same way that he attacked Eve's mind and start putting doubts and start putting lies into her when he said, surely you will not die. That's exactly what God said. You eat from this, you will die. And Satan says, surely you will not die. The helmet refers to the mind that's controlled by God. The intellect plays a vital role in our Christian growth, in our Christian service, and in our Christian victory. Hey, look, I presume that every single person here has an intellect about something in their lives. There's something that you've studied and you've learned and you know a lot about this and you know a lot about that, whatever your hobbies might be. We have the capacity. We have the intellect. We just need to apply it to the things of the Lord to protect our mind so that what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden won't happen to us. When God controls the mind, Satan cannot lead us astray. When God controls the mind, the enemy cannot lead us astray. The Christian who studies and learns the Word is not going to be led astray very easily. 
Look what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He says, You therefore, beloved church, knowing this beforehand, like you know this already, I want to remind you to be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, your own righteousness. But grow, grow in what? In the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Grow in the grace and the knowledge. We love to grow in the grace. We claim the grace. Oh, God's grace. Oh, God's grace. Oh, God's grace. Fantastic. You've got the grace part nailed. Now we need to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because the enemy is going to come attacking our mind. And he's going to lie to us and he's going to trip us up and he's going to get us away from the truth of God's Word. And then we're going to be resisting God and we're going to shun God. And we're going to say that God doesn't really exist. Let's talk about this third piece of armor, the Word, the sword of the Spirit, which it says is the Word of God. So the last thing a Roman soldier would take would be a, a, in his hand is his sword. It was his only offensive weapon. And it was used for fighting close in, for, for fighting battles near to you, right? And Hebrews 4 compares the Word of God to a sword because it's able to pierce the inner man just as a sword pierces the body. The sword was designed for quick combat. Just stab somebody, kill them, and get the heck out. Not to, you know, wash, 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 you are like, that's not what we're supposed to do with the enemy, right? Right? That's not, what it's, that's not what it's designed for. Boom, boom. It's for close in fighting to pierce the soul of the enemy and move on. Listen. <laughs> we need the sword because Christ needed it. Did you know that? Do you remember back in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11? Do you remember what happened? Jesus was led up into the wilderness to do what? To be tempted by who? By Satan. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. And three times Satan came after him with a lie. And all three times, how did Jesus reply? For it is written. Boom, boom. All three times Jesus said, For it is written. For it is written. For it is written. And the second time that the enemy tempted Jesus, you know what he actually used in his temptation? The Word of God. He actually quotes part of Scripture to mislead Jesus. And Jesus, oh, but that's not exactly what that means. <laughs> it's a sad day. I didn't say this at the first two services. I was thinking about it after first service this morning that the enemy knows more of the Word than most of us here. The enemy knows more of the Word than most of us here. Maybe all of us. He knows the Word. He knows the Word. Just studying it a long time to know how to trip you up, to know what you do know and what you don't know. Hmm. The more you use a physical sword, the duller it will become. But using God's Word only makes it sharper in our lives. So I ask you, do we simply want to defend ourselves from the enemy? Those first five pieces of the armor were all to defend ourselves. Is that all we want? Do we just want to defend ourselves or do we want to defeat the enemy as well? Boom, boom. Because here's the deal. If all you do is put on those first five pieces, all you're really doing is kind of, okay, ah, okay, miss me. Oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. oh, miss, miss. You know? And you just keep going. You just keep dodging the enemy. And even if you're having a victory but you're not getting killed, all you're doing is dodging the enemy. You're never going to kill him. 
And after a certain period of time, you'd be like, would somebody kill that guy? I'm tired of running around. Right? I hope we're not just trying to defend ourselves. I hope we're also putting ourselves in a position to defeat the enemy. Because here's the deal. If we never fight back, then why would the enemy ever stop attacking us? If we never fight back, if we don't have the weapon, the Word of God, to kill the enemy, why would he ever stop attacking you? He's never going to die. You'll never kill him. You're defending yourself. Maybe you're exhausted from defending yourself, but you'll never defeat him. Because you've left out the only offensive weapon that God has given to you, and the same one that Christ used in the wilderness. For it is written. Boom, boom. Get out of there, man. So I ask you this as well. How sharp, how sharp or how dull is the sword of the Spirit in your life? How sharp or how dull is the sword of the Spirit in your life? Mm. So we just went through those four verses and there was three things listed in 14 and 15 and there was three things listed in 16 and 17. The first one starts with the truth and then it goes into righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and then it ends with the sword of the Spirit, which is the truth. Everything, all of our armor is based in truth. It starts with truth and it ends with truth. Righteousness is based on truth. The gospel of peace is based on truth. Our faith is based on truth. We put our faith in things that we know to be true. Our salvation is based on truth. And so everything in the armor of God, verses 14 through 17, starts and ends with truth. And what that all means is essentially this, that the whole armor of God is a picture of Christ. Go ahead and put up that slide. Did you know that? Those things listed in that order in verses 14 through 17 is literally just a picture of Christ. Christ is the truth. He's our righteousness. He's our peace. He's what gives us faith. He's our salvation and He's the Word. And so the armor of God is nothing more than us studying and learning and becoming Christ-like. Amen? And so what this means is that when we trusted Christ, we received the armor. All we simply need to do every day, each day, every day, is put on and take up that armor. Amen? Good word for us. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us in a time of worship for a few minutes. And um, let, me, let me pray as they work their way up. And if you need prayer, our prayer team is available down here in the corner. Pray with me. Almighty God, we love you. We thank you. We celebrate the fact that you have given us the armor that we need to fight the battles that we face each and every day. Thank you for the loving reminder. Lord, thank you for this calming confidence that we can have when our eyes are fixed upon you, that we can defeat the enemy. Father, if, our, if the sword of our spirit, our handling of this, this word of God, if it's dull, Lord, if our sword is dull, help us to sharpen it. Show us what that looks like, Lord, so that we can defeat an enemy that wants to, that wants to take us out. Lord, we love you and we thank you in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.